Let me tell you about a client I worked with years ago. She was 14, and her parents brought her to therapy because she was flunking her classes, and she wasn't following their rules at home, and she was suddenly getting very angry at them. She was yelling at them. She was telling them to go to hell, that sort of thing. The parents were understandably concerned about their child, and this was back in the day when I did in-home therapy. I would meet with the family in their house, and so the 14-year-old, she she hated me. She really hated me. She didn't want to be in therapy. She hated her parents. She hated everyone pretty much except for her friends. She just wanted to spend all of her time with her friends. And she would sneak out at night to be with her friends. And she would sneak out to be with older boys sometimes. Her parents were understandably frustrated. And they were probably scared of what she would do. The parents wanted me to connect with her, but it wasn't easy. The client, she refused to talk to me. We spent many hours just sitting in silence. It was hard work for me, I must say. There were times when I just wanted to give up. Sometimes she would just lay on the couch while I desperately tried to get her to talk with me. She was, she was, she was fairly frustrating for me. But over time, over many sessions, the 14-year-old client began to trust me. She began to open up about how much she, about how much she was suffering and how awful she felt and how angry she was and how sad she was. I found out that she was in a constant state of emotional distress. It was an ongoing, relentless emotional suffering for her. It wasn't just depression. It was something, it was something perhaps deeper than that, something more excruciating. So I focused on empathizing with her suffering. I really wanted her to know that I understood the suffering that she was experiencing. And I avoided the counter-transferential impulse to tell her to behave. You know, lots of people reacted to her in this way. They, they reacted to her by telling her, look, you got to follow the rules and you got to be responsible. And I really tried to avoid that because her behavior really provoked that in me and other people. And as she began to trust me, our sessions developed into a new rhythm. At the beginning of the session, she would roll her eyes at me at first. You know, she wouldn't want to talk much. And then I would spend about 25 minutes working hard to convince her that I cared about her suffering. And then she would shift and she would eventually soften and she would tell me about how she hated everybody and how she hated herself, really. And then one day she revealed that she had been cutting for several months. She was cutting on her arm. She showed me the scars on her upper arm. We were talking in her bedroom and she pulled out a box from under her bed. I looked in the box and it was, it was a supply kit for self-injury. There were razor blades, there was rubbing alcohol, there were bandages, there were lots of stuff like that. She told me that she was addicted to cutting herself. She told me that she never told anyone before, and she seemed very ashamed of it. I asked her why she did it, and she said she cut because it made her feel better. It made her feel better. This was very strange to me at the time. I had no, you know, this, this didn't make any sense to me at that time. How could cutting your arm make you feel better? The thought of cutting my upper arm with a razor blade gave me the heebie-jeebies. So I didn't know how to deal with it. It was confusing and it was scary to me. So I consulted with some colleagues and I got a mixed reaction. Some of, some of my colleagues said she was, just trying to get a neg- she was just trying to get negative attention from other people. Some, sh- some said she was just practicing for suicide. And some said she was addicted to pain. I didn't know what to think. So I decided to read the literature on cutting and self-injury. And I also tried to understand her experience of cutting, not only just reading the literature and the research, but 
I really focused on trying to understand what it was like for her. And I learned a lot from her, from that first client that cut. Since then, I have been providing treatment and supervision on cutting. I find that most people, including many clinicians, have a very limited understanding of cutting and self-injury. And then I received an email from patron Bianca. She wrote, Hey, Dr. Kirk, love the podcasts. I would love to hear you guys do a podcast on self-harm. Well, since you're a patron, your wish is our command. So today, we'll be talking about the research regarding cutting, and we'll be talking about what it's like for the client, why do they do it, what it feels like, and I'll provide some treatment guidelines and some, some stories of, of real people that cut as well. Welcome to the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am chair of the Couple and Family Therapy Program at Antioch University, Seattle, and I'm also a licensed marriage and family therapist. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast, so if you're listening to this and you're not a patron of the podcast, this episode will end before the content begins. If you want to hear the full episode, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. And just as a side note, I want everyone to know, we've talked about this already, we already have up and running the premium podcast feed available on most podcast applications on your phone. So recently we added that feature. So you will be able to get the patron-only episodes on your phone via the premium feed. Okay. Hello, patrons. We are now in the patron zone. All right. Let's provide a definition of cutting and self-harm and self-injury. I always hate it when people don't provide a definition up front. So here we go. The preferred term currently in the research and clinical literature is non-suicidal self-injury or NSSI. So I'm going to be trying to use this term non-suicidal self-injury. And the reason for this long term is you'll, you'll see when I explain this. Now, there are other terms that are used in the literature. Other terms that are used are, for instance, cutting is used in the non-clinical literature. But other clinical literature will use terms like deliberate self-harm or just self-injury or self-mutilation or self-inflicted violence or self-injurious behavior. So there's a lot of terms. As with everything in psychology, everyone wants to come up with a different term, and it provides some confusion and annoyance to me because it's like, come on, people, let's decide on a term. Non-suicidal self-injury seems to be the term that's emerged recently, and I like it because it, it totally explains the situation. It's non-suicidal and it's self-injury. If you say self-injury... People might confuse that with suicidal behavior. Also, if you say self-harm, again, that could be misunderstood. So it's non-suicidal self-injury. Now, non-suicidal, the definition, NSSI involves intentionally causing physical harm to one's body without the intent to die. Again, NSSI or non-suicidal self-injury involves intentional causing of physical harm to one's own body without the intent to die. This is important. So although NSSI and suicide are related, they are distinct from each other. They can be related for some individuals, but they are not the same thing. 
the vast majority of people who engage in NSSI are actually not trying to kill themselves. That's important to know. And it's a misunderstanding for a lot of people, particularly lay people. When people cut, oftentimes, the vast majority of times, they're not actually trying to kill themselves. Now, people who engage in self-injury, in non-suicidal self-injury, are often suicidal, but not always. And just because they're suicidal at times and they're cutting does not mean that cutting will indicate they're, they're at risk for suicide. But I'll get into more of that later. Anyway. Other things that NSSI is not. NSSI is distinguished from, one, socially sanctioned behavior like tattoos. You know, tattoos, when you get a tattoo, it's not suicidal, right? And you are intentionally harming yourself. So we have to, so in in the definition of NSSI, you know, intentionally causing physical harm to your body without the intent to die. Well, one could say, well, then tattoos is NSSI. But we distinguish NSSI from socially sanctioned behavior, such as getting a tattoo. Number two, NSSI is distinguished from a symptom of a pervasive developmental disorder. So if someone has a pervasive developmental disorder, and as a part of that, they have a symptom of banging their head or hitting themselves, we, in the, in the clinical and the research literature, we tend to distinguish NSSI from that behavior. Also, number three, NSSI is distinguished from reckless behavior that may indirectly result in bodily harm. For instance, smoking or driving fast or taking too many drugs. These things are perhaps non-suicidal and they're perhaps intentionally done in, toward, in order to cause harm to the body, but they're, they're left out of the definition. We, we would like to refer to those as a, with a different term, mostly because we're trying to limit the discussion to a particular set of behaviors that seem to clump together. So again, driving too fast or taking drugs or smoking, although you might do this with the intent of harming yourself, we distinguish NSSI from these kinds of behaviors. And the last thing, number four, that we distinguish NSSI from are side effects of eating disorders, such as you know losing weight or harm to your teeth because of vomiting. These are things that are harming the body, and the person is, quote-unquote, intentionally doing things to harm the body. You know, when a person purges and purposely vomits, they're doing it on purpose, and it is resulting in harm of the body. But we distinguish NSSI from this sort of thing because it, it, it doesn't... Uh, meet the spirit of the definition, if that makes any sense. Also, it should be pointed out that the term self-harm often involves, in, in, when it's described in the literature, self-harm is often involving both suicidal and, new, and non-suicidal behaviors. So, in other words, NSSI or non-suicidal self-injury is a subset of self-harm. And suicide is, is another subset of the broader umbrella of self-harm. Although some authors use self-harm and self-injury as the same term. So that's thoroughly confusing, right? But usually you can tell by the context in which it's used. But anyway, all right, just some random details here before we get into more of the details. The orange ribbon apparently is used for self-harm awareness. You know how there's different ribbons for different awarenesses? Well, apparently the orange ribbon is used for self-harm awareness. 
Personally, I think there are too many ribbons these days, and there should just be something like, like how many people know that, that the orange ribbon is for self-harm? I think it should be, I don't know. We should just have like the the word should be in it or something. I don't know. Like self-harm awareness flag on your lapel or I don't know. Anyway, other information around self-injury. Other animals, other animals have been found to injure themselves. There are multiple examples among animals regarding self-injury. For example, macaque monkeys sometimes self-harm when they are isolated and stressed. Many animals, when they are isolated in cages and stressed out, will, will injure themselves on purpose. Dogs do this sometimes, and anxious birds sometimes do this. And this is an example of other animals, uh, aside from humans, who will use self-injury, seemingly, to, as a way, as a symptom of internal emotional suffering. All right, so we've done the definition. Now let's do the prevalence. What's the prevalence of NSSI? NSSI is most common among adolescents and young adults. That probably doesn't surprise people. Research has found that anywhere between 16% and 39% of adolescents and 13% of young adults report at least one incidence of NSSI in their lifetimes. So again, somewhere between 16 and 39% of teens and about 13% of young adults report at least one incidence, just one, at least just one incidence of NSSI in their lifetimes. However, it should be noted that NSSI can occur at any age. The rate seems to be increasing since the 1980s, which is interesting, but it's always hard to tell that because research methods shift over time. And like with autism, it, it seems to be on the increase, but actually it, it actually isn't increasing. It's just a element of our measurement methods. Anyway, NSSI typically begins between the ages of 12 and 16 years of age, and the average onset is age 16. So it's, it's very common for kids to start developing it in late middle school, early high school. The prevalence peaks at the age uh, within the 20s years, and it falls off as people get older. So again, about 30% of teens and about 13% of young adults have reported using NSSI at least once, and a lesser percentage do it regularly. All right, gender. What can we say about gender? Research regarding adolescent NSSI has found that it is most common among females. However, since male NSSI is rarely studied, gender differences may not be as pronounced as once believed. For instance, some studies have found similar rates between the genders. So there are a smattering of studies that have found that both men and women participate in NSSI in equal rates. And the reason why we believe females do it more is because we pay attention to it more or females are more likely to admit it in a study or something like that. When they study the actual behaviors among gender, on average, females tend to cut while, men, while males tend to burn or hit themselves. So again, uh, when they look at the averages, they find that the average females tend to cut while the average males tend to burn or hit themselves. This isn't to say that 
there aren't females that won't burn themselves. And this also isn't to say that there aren't males that don't cut. So just keep that in mind. Also, females tend on average to engage in NSSI more frequently than males. So although the rates might be similar, it seems that among individual females, they tend to, con- they tend to engage in it more often, you know, more times per week than their male counterparts. All right, that's gender. What can we say about culture? NSSI has a consistent presentation in different cultures. This is interesting. It's not just an American thing. It's something that it seems to be consistent across cultures. Also, incidents of NSSI rates vary according to ethnicity, but not much research has been done in this area. So it seems as though different ethnicities have different rates of NSSI, but we don't know much about that yet. Also, it probably doesn't surprise you enlightened people that LGBTQ people report engaging in NSSI at substantially higher rates, as with suicide and other issues regarding suffering, emotional suffering, because of our societal oppression and societal bigotry and societal hatred, LGBTQ people are much, much more likely to engage in NSSI. All right, now let's get into some classification discussion. The more common methods of NSSI are skin cutting and self-hitting, but mainly skin cutting is the most prevalent method of non-suicidal self-injury. Other ways that people will engage in NSSI are, like I said, burning, scratching, interfering with the healing of wounds, which is interesting. So if, if you already have a wound, someone will pick at it and interfere with its healing. Some people will carve words or symbols into their skin. Some people will scratch their skin repeatedly. Some people will pull their hair. We did an episode on hair pulling disorder. And the non-suicidal self-injury hair pulling is different from the compulsive hair pulling They might overlap in some areas, but some people will pull their hair compulsively in a non-self-injury manner, Uh, and I'll get more into that later, but anyway, just know that just because someone's pulling their hair out doesn't, you don't necessarily know if it's non-suicidal self-injury related or if it is compulsive related, and again, there's some overlap. Other ways that people will do it uh, in SSI is they will bang body parts, They might even break their bones. They might throw their body against walls. They might bite themselves. And they might also stick themselves with needles. So, again, cutting, burning, scratching, interfering with wounds, carving carving things into their skin, scratching, hair pulling, banging their body parts, breaking their bones, throwing their body against the walls, biting themselves, and sticking themselves with needles. Other forms of self-harm that are usually excluded from the definition of NSSI are poisoning yourself, overeating or undereating, intentional overdose, and exercising excessively. So these are other forms of self-harm that we leave out of the definition of non-suicidal self-injury. All right, DSM-5 might surprise some of you that non-suicidal self-injury is actually included in the DSM-5 as a condition for further study. If you're, if you're familiar with the DSM-5, you know at the end of the 
very, very long tome, is a chapter on conditions for further study, and non-suicidal self-injury is one of those conditions. And they define it in the DSM-5 as, in the last year, the client has, on five or more days, engaged in intentional self-inflicted damage to the surface of his or her body without suicidal intent. So again, in the last year, the client has, on five or more days, engaged in intentional self-inflicted damage to the surface of the body without suicidal intent. So that's kind of interesting. It's a pretty low bar, in my opinion. But but it's probably fine. So in the last year, on five or more days, which is not very many days, right, the, the person has engaged in intentional self-inflicted damage. And the individual must have been motivated by either of the following three things. Seeking relief from a negative state, or two, resolving an interpersonal difficulty, or three, achieving a positive state. So the individual must have been motivated, as they were injuring themselves, by seeking relief from a negative state. This is a very common reason why people will engage in self-injury. Or they're trying to resolve an interpersonal difficulty. They're in a fight with someone, and they use self-injury as a way of trying to alleviate that fight with the other person. Or they're trying to achieve a positive state, meaning that they get a euphoria or some kind of emotional positive state from cutting. So it's a pretty broad definition, and it would actually capture quite a few people. But you notice that it would exclude certain things, like, for instance, poisoning yourself or overeating or undereating, because it's not damage to the surface of the body. That's an important distinction in the DSM-5 they're trying to do. And bone breaking, you know, doesn't really, should probably be included in there somewhere, but it's not. But uh, a lot of the other things that are considered to be NSSI are included in the DSM-5 definition. All right, what are the risk factors? What are the factors that might lead to this developing in an individual? Well, the first one that I will mention are mental disorders. There are many mental disorders that are risk factors for NSSI, mainly borderline personality disorder. According to research, 70% of those with borderline personality disorder engage in NSSI. But not everyone who engages in NSSI is borderline. So that's an important thing to know. Sometimes when we come across in my industry someone who engages in self-injury, it's assumed that the person is borderline, particularly if they're female. And that's, that's, a, that's an oversimplification of the situation. Having said that, if you have a client that's borderline, in all likelihood, they're engaging in some form of NSSI. But there are many who don't. But uh, it's just something to keep in mind. All right. To a lesser extent, the following mental disorders are risk factors for NSSI. Depression, anxiety disorders, eating disorders, conduct disorders, dissociation, schizophrenia, PTSD, and substance abuse, particularly alcohol or benzodiazepine uh, abuse. Cannabis use or marijuana use does not seem to be a risk factor. Also, it should be noted that many people who engage in NSSI do not qualify for a diagnosis other than NSSI. So know that for, for, for many people that engage in self-injury, they actually don't qualify for another disorder, but they often do. 
So again, main, mainly borderline is associated with NSSI and to a lesser extent, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, conduct, conduct disorders, association, schizophrenia, PTSD, and substance use. All right, what are some environmental factors that might lead to a higher risk of developing NSSI? Well, the first one is trauma. As you might know now by listening to this podcast, trauma, early childhood trauma particularly, can cause a number of ills later in life, including non-suicidal self-injury. Also war, which is you know just a subset of trauma really. So coming from a war-torn area, is a risk factor for developing an SSI. Family conflict as an early child. Experiencing family conflict is a risk factor. Poverty and unemployment in your family and for yourself is a risk factor. The end of a relationship. You know, you, you get divorced or you break up with someone and it's difficult for you. That's a risk factor for an SSI. Also, grief and loss, someone dying that's close to you or, or moving or losing a job. These are risk factors. A troubled relationship with your partner, with your spouse. This is also a risk factor. Isolation and loneliness, being, being isolated, being lonely. This is a, a risk factor for NSSI. And really, as a catch-all, as a catch-all category, Adverse life events. So any difficult life event can lead to an SSI for some people. All right. What are some demographic factors? Again, I talked about gender, but another demographic factor that might add to the risk of developing NSSI is being unmarried. For whatever reason, according to research, if you're, if you're married, you're less likely to engage in NSSI. And we'll get into this later, but the hypothesis or the speculation there is the more isolated someone is, the more likely they are to engage in NSSI. And the more someone feels connected to people, the less likely they're going to do it. All right. What are the psychological factors? So we've gone over the mental health disorders. We've gone over environmental causes, demographic things. And now what are the psychological factors that add to the risk of developing NSSI? Well, the first and perhaps the most important one is emotional dysregulation or emotional difficulty, emotions that are flying out of control, that are intense and difficult for someone. This is a massive factor for the development of NSSI. Another psychological factor is self-criticism. So when people tend, if someone has a tendency to involve and to engage in a lot of self-criticism, that's a risk factor for developing NSSI. And I'll get into more of that later. Also, suicidal ideation. As I said earlier, suicidal ideation, suicidal behavior is associated with NSSI. It's not equal to, and it it's and not everyone who is suicidal does NSSI, not everyone who's NSSI is suicidal, but it is a it is a risk factor, suicidal ideation. Other psychological factors are when frustrated, their frustration tends to produce intense psychological hyperarousal. So in other words, when when they become frustrated, particularly with with relationships, they tend to experience much more than the average person a an, an intense physiological reaction. People that experience an intense physiological reaction to a fight or rejection from someone 
these ten, these people have a higher risk of engaging in non-suicidal self-injury. Also, they tend to prefer to suppress unpleasant thoughts and feelings. So if you have feelings and you have difficult feelings and you tend to want to get rid of them through suppression, then this is a risk factor for self-injury. Also, these people tend to have a low tolerance for distress. So when they are distressed, they tend to have a very low tolerance for it. And they seem to have difficulty recovering from distress. So they get in a fight with their boss at work, and instead of it affecting them the average amount of two days, it affects them for a month or something like that. These, these people tend to be at higher risk of engaging in NSSI. They tend to have difficulty with interpersonal communication. So they have, a, they have difficulty communicating with other people. They tend to have sensitivity to interpersonal rejection. So people that tend to be very sensitive to rejection from other people tend to engage in NSSI. And if you've listened to my Borderline podcast, which many of you have, many of you patrons have, you will know that this is related. People with borderline are the central feature in my book to borderline is sensitivity to rejection based on previous abandonment. And so the, that is a, is a risk factor for engaging in an SSI. Also, they tend to punish themselves when they mess up. This is a big one. So when they perceive themselves as having made a mistake, they tend to punish themselves in various ways, either by berating themselves or by not letting them have a good thing. <laughs> like, you know, you don't get to have that cookie tonight because you were a bad person today. And this, is, this, mind, this mindset is a risk factor for developing NSSI, which makes sense, right? Also, they tend to be impulsive, which is interesting. Impulsivity is a risk factor. Also, they often have a heightened tolerance for physical pain, which is interesting, right? And pain tends to produce an intense anti-pain, anti-pain effect in these people. So if you have someone that can tolerate a lot of pain, and when they experience pain, they experience a lot of anti-pain effect, you know, in the brain, all those nice chemicals that wash over the brain and make you feel better. If you have a high tolerance for pain and a big effect from pain, then these people tend to develop NSSI, which makes sense, right? All right, so we've talked about the definition, we've talked about the prevalence, we've talked about gender and culture and the classification, DSM-5, risk factors. Now let's go into the causes. This is related to risk factor, but I thought I'd break it out. So the potential causes of NSSI are conflict and rejection. It is found by research that when they ask people who engage in NSSI, it's often preceded by conflict with other people and rejection from other people. So this is an important thing to note. Also, trauma and abuse in one's history is another potential cause of later developing NSSI. According to a, a review of the research by, by several people, NSSI is associated with trauma, PTSD, and emotional dysregulation, as I was saying earlier. 
Particularly, it's associated with sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, bullying, abandonment, neglect, parental unresponsiveness, and parental shaming. So all of these things in one's history are potential causes, so to speak, of NSSI. So it seems that severe trauma and neglect leads to ongoing emotional suffering and isolation and rejection, which leads to various psychological issues, including at times NSSI. So also we might talk about the motivations or the functions of NSSI, and it really varies from person to person. But the main thing to know here is the main motivation, the main function of non-suicidal self-injury is to decrease negative feelings or to cope with emotional dysregulation. This is very, very important. If you know anything about this sort of thing, you already know this, but listen to me again. The main motivation and function of cutting and other forms of non-suicidal self-injury is to decrease negative feelings. And we're not talking about just minor negative feelings. We're talking about the sort of negative feelings that someone will turn to cutting their own body to relieve themselves from. And these difficult feelings often are related to anxiety and stress and depression or feeling numb. Sometimes people will cut so they can relieve themselves from feeling empty and numb or low self-esteem or even perfectionism. Some people will cut as a way of avoiding their perfectionistic anxiety, if that's a word. Also, again, immediately preceding most NSSI behaviors is acute and severe negative feelings. And immediately after NSSI, people usually experience decreased negative feelings. And again, this is just getting very explicit about what I've been saying, is that when people that have a habit of engaging in NSSI, when they have a spike of severe negative feelings, then they, can, they engage in NSSI and they experience a decrease in those negative feelings. So it has a function in their life. Also, research has found that deficits in emotional regulation, these deficits are associated with NSSI. So if you want to help someone, you want to help them with their emotional regulation. Also, when someone is heavily ruminating on something shameful, NSSI seems to distract or eliminate it. So not only just, you know, general negative feelings, but also if someone's heavily ruminating on something that they're ashamed of. So they, I don't know, they do something silly at a party and they make an idiot out of themselves. To, the, to them, they feel like they were made an idiot out of themselves. And they go home and they just ruminate on it and they ruminate on it and they ruminate on it. And as a way of relieving that pain and that rumination, they, they turn to cutting. <clears throat> as I men- mentioned earlier, self-punishment and self-criticism seem to be a motivation. So when someone is motivated to punish themselves or when they're motivated to criticize themselves, to put themselves down, they will turn to self-injury as a way of doing that. For some, NSSI serves the function of expressing intense hostility toward other people. So this is important. This is different than the typical function, but there are, for some people, 
a function of expressing intense hostility towards others. When someone feels as though they can't express anger towards someone for whatever reason, for, you know, they're afraid of some adverse reaction, they might redirect their hostility toward themselves. So, for instance, you have a 13-year-old girl. Let's say boy. Let's get rid of the stereotype. 13-year-old boy. And he has an abusive mother. And he wants to strike back at the mother for good reason. For, you know, he's justified. He's, his mother has been emotionally and physically abusive to him since he was born. And he, he's angry at her. He wants to strike back at her. But he knows that if he strikes back at her, she will just increase her abuse of him. So he's stuck, but he has this intense anger that he wants to express. And if he beats up his younger sister, he knows he's going to get an even bigger beating from his mom. So this, so psychologically what happens for some people is they will turn this upon themselves. They will turn that anger into hostility and cutting of themselves. Another function of NSSI is to ground themselves, to keep them from dissociating. A way of keep, you know, I've talked about dissociation before, you know, you're, you're, you're leaving your body, so to speak. And as you're leaving your body, you actually don't want to do that. It, it feels bad. And so a way to keep you grounded in your body, there are various different ways of grounding, you know, by saying, say, I'm sitting here in this room and my feet are on the ground. And, and if you touch the chair and you touch the, the table and you're saying, I am here in this room, that's a way of grounding. Well, another way of grounding yourself and keeping yourself from dissociating is to cut yourself, apparently. So this is another function for some people. Some people use NSSI to numb themselves. Some people use it to avoid suicide, which is interesting, right? So they're suicidal, but they're ambivalent about suicide, and they don't. there's a part of them that really doesn't want to kill themselves. And so they will use non-suicidal self-injury as a way of sort of placating the suicidal part of themselves without actually committing suicide, right? So it, some people will use it to avoid suicide. Some people use NSSI to experience an intense sensation. So they're not trying to avoid something. They're actually trying to get something. They're trying to, trying to get a sensation. Some people will use it to increase social support. So this is a manipulation of people around them. They're trying to get sympathy from others. This is very rare, I just want to say. But there are some people that do that. There's also some people that use non-suicidal self-injury to remove an undesired social demand. So say their parents are making them do something that they don't want to do, and they will use cutting as a way of scaring their parents into backing off. Again, this is often the assumed reason why people will involve themselves in cutting, but it's actually a rare motivation. It's a rare function of NSSI. Some people will engage in NSSI to make something invisible visible. So emotions are invisible, right? If you are ruminating and suffering for days on end, no one can see it. And sometimes it helps to make something visible, even if just to yourself. It's like, now I can see that I'm bleeding. That, that means that I, uh, it's real. I am suffering. And sometimes that's, that's soothing to someone to see something real. It's also a reason for getting a sense of control. Some people you will self-injure as a way of gaining a sense of control. It's as if they're saying, 
Although I have no control over my life, at least I have control over this. I can cut myself. That I have control of. This is another reason why some people are driven to eating disorders. Another motivation, another, another function of NSSI is to have a distracting ritual, a ritual that distracts you from something that's painful to you. So you just want some sort of ritual to take your mind off something. Because cutting and various other forms of self-injury often involve a kind of ritual. Like with cutting, for instance, you got to get alone. And maybe you put on your special music and you get out your kit and you put your alcohol swab on your arm and clean it off and you clean off the razor blade. And then you might have a certain routine about getting the razor blade up to your arm and then you cut a certain way and then you dab up the blood and you take the tissue with the blood and you put it in a baggie. And then, you know, it's a routine and it's a ritual. And for some people, this, any, any sort of ritual will distract them from something that's painful and cutting can be that, that ritual. Also, people will use an SSI to create a reason to care for the self. So they have a desire to receive caring and they're having a hard time getting it from other people and they have a hard time motivating themselves to self-care. Well, as a kind of odd psychological twist, what they will do is they will cut themselves and then proceed to care for themselves, care for the wounds. And this is a somewhat twisted psychological thing to get them to care for themselves, if that makes sense. Another function of NSSI is to communicate to others in a passive way, which I sort of talked about before in terms of getting support from other people. So sometimes someone wants to communicate something to other people. They feel that they can't for whatever reason, and they resort to NSSI to communicate something to other people. Another, and the, the final thing that I will, final function that is often discussed in the literature, or sometimes discussed in the literature, is to get attention. And as I talked about earlier, this is a, a very rare motivation for cutting, but it's real. So for instance, in, on Reddit, I have the following quote from somebody. It is a sad truth that most people believe self-harm is just a form of attention-seeking. In a way, it is. And of course, some people are desperate for any kind of attention. But I'm not seeking attention from people. It is a very personal, emotionally, and ultimately selfish and traumatic thing for a person to reach the point of tearing their own skin to feel something different for release or for comfort. So this is a, a quote of someone refuting the idea that people use it for attention-seeking. But here's another person saying something quite different. I cut about 30 cuts down my arm in order to gauge what the people around me would say. From what I have seen, most people avoid the subject. Some ask about the cuts, and some actually call me out or report me to my boss. I can get free services now because my boss called me in about it. So, you know, Reddit, who knows if it's real or not. There's no way of confirming it. But this person is saying that they used cutting as a way of getting attention. So it happens. And you, know, you as clinicians might actually come across that sometimes. But I would, I would caution you against thinking about this because often it can seem like they're trying to get attention. And everyone wants attention, right? 
But in my experience, the vast, vast majority of people who cut are not trying to just get attention. They're actually suffering a lot and they are resorting to cutting as a way of coping with that deep, deep, deep suffering. Okay, so we've gone over the definition, we've gone over the prevalence, gender, culture, classification, DSM-5, risk factors, and causes, and the various causes we've gone over have to do with what it's preceded by, we've talked about trauma and abuse history, we've talked about other motivations and functions, mainly to decrease negative feelings related to feelings regarding trauma from your early childhood. Well, What's the psychodynamic perspective? People are often asking me that, and here's my psychodynamic perspective. And if you ask 10 psychodynamic people, you'll get 11 different things, but here's mine. If someone experiences ongoing abuse or neglect as a child, they internalize that relationship. They internalize that dyad. They internalize a representation of that relationship between themselves and the other person. So if they're experiencing neglect or abuse from their parents, then they internalize that relationship between themselves and their parents. Over time, this internalization becomes a fixed part of their personality. This is important. They actually internalize their abuser. That's important to note. And the abuser becomes a part of their personality. As a teen, when they become frustrated or emotionally hurt, this internalized abuser becomes activated And that part of the self seeks to punish the self in the way that their parents punished them when they were bad. And one of the ways that people punish themselves is through self-hatred and self-injury. So again, they're a child, they're being yelled at, they're being told they're a terrible person or they're being punished severely in some way. And this is ongoing and scary and intense and they internalize this relationship and The abuser becomes a part of the self. And when this person grows up and does something, quote unquote, wrong or bad or something they should be, quote unquote, ashamed of, then this internalized abuser is activated and will proceed to abuse the self by using self-injury. Essentially, their abusive parent is emerging from them and punishing them from within, if that makes any sense. And this perspective I find to be quite useful when assessing and treating people, many people with NSSI. Okay, what are the signs? If you're out there and you have clients or you have friends that you think might have, be, might be conducting, might be engaging in NSSI, what are the signs of it? Well, the first thing I'll say is it is very, very difficult to detect. People who engage in NSSI are very good at hiding it. It is almost never discovered. It's usually told by the person to you. So it's, it's, it, if you have someone close to you engaging in an SSI, you probably will never find out. Because again, it's, it's very easy to, to disguise. Particularly in areas like Seattle, where it's hardly ever warm enough to wear a short sleeve shirt, you could hide pretty much almost every inch, square inch of your body, and no one would ever know. All right. But the most obvious sign is unexplained evidence of cuts on the arm. Since cutting is the most common form of non-suicidal self-injury, if someone has a series, particularly if they're in rows and they look like deliberate and they can't seem to explain it, then this is an obvious sign. The location of the self-injury varies from person to person. And again, 
know that most people will cut in an area that is easy to hide, like the inner thigh or the upper arm. Another sign to look for are cutting instruments. So if they have razor blades around, this sort of thing. Another thing to look for are blood-soaked tissues or towels, unexplained blood stains around. Also, another sign is the person never wearing clothes that reveals the upper arm, since the upper arm is a frequent place where people cut, or lower arm. But again, these are just very weak uh, indicators since, you know, blood-soaked something or other in the bedroom could mean a lot of things. And not wearing short sleeve shirts could mean a lot of things. And so just know that it's, it's very difficult to detect. Okay, let me go over some common myths. I've already go over, gone over some myths, but let me go over some other ones that I could think of. The first one, again, is that they're just doing it to get attention. This is true for a very small minority, but the vast majority are doing it to cope with severe negative emotions, and they don't want anyone to know about it. Uh, the second myth I want to point out is that, again, that as I said before, NSSI does not mean suicide. I can see why people would think this, but it's not usually the case. Teachers who will come across cutting in their, in their, with their students often freak out because they think it has to do with suicide. So we can do a lot to help everybody to spread the notion that NSSI does not necessarily mean suicide. In fact, it usually doesn't. What, what, what this will help is it'll help the teachers and parents to relieve their anxiety, but it'll also help the people who are suffering to come out of the closet more easily because if you come out of the closet and everyone's freaking out, then you're going to go back in the closet. The third myth is that NSSI means that the person is dangerous. There are some people that believe that, oh, that guy is cutting on himself. That means he's going to kill me. This is not the case. There's no evidence that someone who engages in NSSI is any more dangerous than anybody else. The fourth myth that I'd like to dispel is that NSSI is just a teenage phase. It could be. There are some people that, that, it, that it is this way for them. It's just a phase. But it's not usually the case. Again, it's usually evidence of ongoing suffering and isolation. Number five, the fifth myth I'd like to dispel is that NSSI is just something that teen girls do to fit in. This definitely happens for teen girls. They will sometimes engage in self-injury as a way of fitting into their friend group, but it's not usually the case, particularly if it's ongoing. If someone just tried it for you know a week or a weekend or something, and then they never did it again, then that is evidence that they were doing it as an experiment or they were doing it to fit in with, with their group. But if it's ongoing for months on end, that's not usually indicative of someone that's doing it to fit in. It's usually indicative of someone that's suffering greatly and they're using cutting to cope with it. And the final myth I wanted to spell is that men don't engage in NSSI. As I said earlier, there's, there's some evidence that suggests that males engage in NSSI as much as women do. But people pay less attention to it, including researchers, so it's hard to know. So remember that men absolutely engage in NSSI in the same way that there are many men, there are many of the many borderline people, there are, men are many of them. <laughs> That's a bad sense, but anyway. All right, now let's talk about what you should do if a friend is engaging in NSSI. 
So this is not necessarily a client, but what should you do if you discover that your friend is engaging in non-suicidal self-injury? Well, again, going to Reddit, there are some people that have weighed in about this. And here's one person. I recently found out without her knowledge that my sister cuts to deal with intense emotions when she fights with her boyfriend. She hasn't told anyone, not even her boyfriend. And she makes excuses for her cuts. My sister is in her 20s and she is confident and beautiful. She is even keeled, pretty level-headed, and usually pretty happy. She cries easily, but I never thought anything of it until now. I don't know what I should do with this information. Do I approach her on my own? Do I get her help? So uh, I will go into more of that later, but uh, let's get someone else on Reddit saying, if someone has self-harm scars of any kind on their arms or legs or anywhere, and you don't know them, just don't bring it up. Just treat that individual like a normal person. Normalcy can be very difficult to achieve for self-harmers. I have been clean for well over a year now, but it's been a long road. I was riding down the elevator in my building, and it was crowded. We had seven or eight people in the elevator. Everyone was talking friendly. This gent took it upon himself to grab my scar-covered arm and say, You cut that shit out. I was so startled that I just, that I just laughed nervously and tried to pull my arm away. He then said, I mean it. I didn't even know this guy. It takes a lot of bravery for a person in my situation to wear short sleeves. Trust me, I am very aware that they are there. But it's summer and it's hot out and I want to wear a t-shirt. After this, I know I will be wearing long sleeves when I leave the apartment. Okay, so that person is, is saying, come on, you know, don't shame me and keep your stupid comments to yourself. All right, so steps that I thought of that I thought you could do if you have a friend close to you that is engaging in non-suicidal self-injury, you can follow these steps. Well, the first step that I think you need to take is to take a deep breath and tell yourself that everything is going to be fine and don't panic. This is often a something that people will do when they discover someone close to them is engaging in NSSI. They will freak out, panic, and create all sorts of damage. So take a deep breath, know that everything is going to be fine, and don't panic. You don't have to do anything right away usually. They've probably probably been doing it for months, if not years. There's no emergency on your hands, even though it might feel like it's an emergency. It's not. So slow down because you're not going to help anyone by running around like a chicken with its head cut off. Okay, number two, focus on compassion rather than anxiety or anger or control. You'll have an urge to control or to get angry to get and to get passionate, but you want to focus on your compassion for the human being. That's important. You want to have compassion for them. If you panic, if you, if you slow down and, and relieve your panic and you focus on compassion, that is a very good first two steps. The third thing you need to do is learn about self-injury. You want to learn as much as you can. And listening to this podcast is one of those ways. The fourth thing you should do is approach the person carefully. You want to be very careful as you approach them. Don't try to make them stop. Don't become parental or controlling with them. Don't judge them. Don't, don't shame them. Shame only makes it worse. Offer your support. Offer long-term support, but don't force it. Don't force support upon them. 
Don't tell them, you will accept my support and you will listen to me as I support you. Don't force it. But make sure it's long-term support. Don't come at them with just one or two moments of support. You, you have to commit to a long-term campaign with them. Also, you want to listen to them. You don't want to just preach at them. You want to, you want to if the, whatever they have to say, you want to listen to them. You want, you want to create that listening space because in all likelihood, they're engaging in NSSI because they don't feel listened to in general in their life. Another thing that I recommend is, in, is encouraging that person to get professional help. And if they're cutting, in all likelihood, they're suffering a great deal and they definitely need professional help. Also, don't blab to other people. Don't tell everyone else. You want to keep it confidential for the most part. Unless it's an emergency, then obviously you want to tell somebody. But if it doesn't seem to be an emergency, you want to keep it confidential because that will encourage them to tell other people because they'll feel like they'll be able to trust people. And the last thing is to check in with them. Don't just you know come in with support for a short amount of time. You want to check in with them. You might have to check in with them for years about it because it, it might come back. Okay, so those are some of the things that I suggest that you do if you learn that a friend is engaging in in SSI. But let's say you're a therapist. What should you do if you're a therapist? Well, the most widely used treatment models are dialectical behavioral therapy or DBT. Sorry, dialectical behavior therapy, DBT. Cognitive behavior therapy and mentalization-based treatments. So DBT, CBT, and mentalization-based treatments. These are the most common uh, forms of therapy used to treat NSSI. Other therapies that some use are relational psychodynamic therapy and family therapy. These have also been shown to be effective. All of these models are utilized to increase the client's ability to tolerate interpersonal distress. So a main focus of your therapy with someone, if you're trying to eliminate NSSI in general, it should be to increase the client's ability to tolerate distress in their relationships. So when they feel rejected, you want to help them to tolerate that. This is a very important thing. Also, these models of therapy increase emotional regulation. So how aware are they of their emotions and how do they regulate those emotions? When they are angry, what do they do with that anger? When they're sad, do they know they're sad? What do they do with that sadness? Also, these models tend to increase mindfulness, an ability to be mindful. Also, they encourage, they encourage secure attachments with other people. This is, very, this is a very important element to the treatment of NSSI, as it is with many things, is to increase secure attachment in this person's life. They might have never have experienced secure attachment in their life. In their life, they might have never had a relationship that they could depend upon, really. And so you want to help them to develop that. Also, it should be noted that research has shown that therapy can be highly effective for NSSI. For example, research has found that between 50% and 68% of women diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, PTSD, and NSSI were able to reduce self-injurious behavior after one year of DBT. So again, if of, among people that were diagnosed with borderline PTSD and NSSI, when they were given a year of DBT, 50 to 68% of the women were able to reduce their NSSI, which is great. So it can be treated in a relatively short amount of time. 
Okay, so now as a final thing, I'm going to provide my model of therapy for both therapy and clients, for both therapists and clients. So what I'm about to describe is a guide for therapists when they're working with clients and also a guide for clients as they're thinking about helping themselves. The first thing is you have to admit you have a problem. This is a something that is necessary for a lot of things to start. You have to you have to admit that your NSSI is a problem. Now, you don't have to worry about doing anything yet about it because if you if you think that you have to do something right away, you might avoid admitting that you have a problem. A lot of reasons why people stay in denial is because they're worried about what it means to admit they have a problem. If they admit they have a problem, then they have to do something about it. Well, Take that as a distant second step. Just the first step is just admit you have a problem and know that you did it for a good reason. You are suffering tremendously in all likelihood. So acknowledge that, that you have a very, very good reason for doing it. It's not because there's something wrong with you. Okay, so the first thing, again, admit you have a problem. The second thing is to dedicate yourself to taking action. And if you're the therapist, then you want to help the client to dedicate themselves to taking action. This might take time. You might have to spend a lot of time in therapy or a lot of time thinking before you're actually able to take action. But again, this is a necessary step. And if you're a therapist of a client engaging in NSSI, you don't want to skip over this step. I've talked about this in other in other podcast episodes. Often therapists assume that clients are in the action phase, but many clients are not yet ready to take action. And so you have to tailor your therapy. <laughs> what, cat? What do you want? You have something to say? Okay, what was I saying? You have to tailor the therapy to the stage of change that the person is in. And if they're not ready to take action, then you have to think about that. You have to... Uh, now, if you're the client, then in order to motivate yourself to take action, you want to focus on the negative consequences of cutting, the negative consequences of self-injury. You want to think about how shameful it feels after you do it. You want to think about all the efforts you have to put into hiding it. You have to think about how you, at times, will accidentally injure yourself too, too far. You want to think about the possible infection and the possible scarring that will occur. And so these negative consequences might motivate you to take action, to, to find a new way to cope. So again, number one, admit you have a problem. Number two, dedicate yourself to taking action. Number three, you want to get therapy. If you're not in therapy yet, you want to go. And you also want to go to family, family-oriented or family therapy. You want to do that because it's necessary a lot of times to work on the family system. You might also need trauma therapy. Also, you should be with someone that knows self-injury fairly well. Not every therapist is familiar with self-injury, so you want to get a good referral there. So again, admit you have a problem. That's number one. Number two, dedicate yourself to taking action. Number three, getting therapy. And number four is self-awareness. You want to become self-aware as best you can. You want to become aware of your emotions. You want to get to know your shame, your loneliness, your anger, your emptiness, etc. You want to become aware of your triggers to emotion. You want to know why you, why you cut, why you injure yourself. You want to know what emotions precede that. And this might take longer than you think. Again, according to research, many people who will engage in NSSI have, very, have a difficult time with emotional regulation and with emotional awareness. So this, this step might take a long time. Number five, you want to increase physical warmth in your life. This is a cure for a lot of things. 
You want to have physical warmth with attachments, with people in your life, with your pets. Maybe get a massage to get that physical touch. You want to start hugging people more often in appropriate situations. You want to cuddle with people. You really need that. That has a tremendous effect on the brain and on emotional regulation. Number six, you want to get support. You want to have allies. You want to tell people you can trust. You want to give people time to process what you've told them. You know, don't just tell a bunch of people and when they react funny, you run away from them. You want to give them time. Encourage them to become educated and be ready for bad reactions when you do tell people. But know that if you stick with them, they'll probably come around. You can also get support by going to an online forum. It's the beauty of the internet these days. All right, number seven, you want to do body work, which is an umbrella term that I'll use for relaxation, self-massage, and biofeedback. Mindfulness is involved in this sort of thing. Number eight, you want to remove the temptations. You want to get rid of your self-injury gear if you have it. Like that one client that I had, she had that box of razor blades, et cetera. You need to get rid of that because that's a temptation. Also, you want to potentially not be alone very often because isolation not only results in self-injury sometimes, but it also gives you the ability to do it without worrying about other people noticing. If you're constantly around other people, it'd be hard to self-injure because people around you would probably stop you from doing it, right? Okay, so that's removed temptations. Number nine, you want to distract yourself. This is a very important thing. You want to distract yourself with friends. You want to stay busy. Make a schedule and follow it and try not to get bored because the the possibility is when you're bored, it might result in self-injury. Number 10, you want to substitute it with something. This is very, very important. You want to find a substitute for the self-injury. Some suggestions, and some of these sound quite silly, but some people have found this to be useful, is to mark with a red pen where you usually cut. So instead of cutting, you use a red pen. So it's just kind of like a transition behavior to sobriety. Uh, Some people suggest rubbing ice across your skin instead because ice can actually be, it can, you can experience a lot of pain with ice. And something that a lot of people do is they will snap rubber bands on their wrists or on their arms or on their legs. Again, this is not a wonderful thing to be doing to yourself, but it's a lot less harmful than, than cutting and other kinds of self-injury. And so it's a transition behavior. Number 11, which is related to number 10, now that I'm reading it, is do something else instead. You can exercise, you can punch a pillow, you can scream, you can eat something very spicy or something with a lot of menthol. For whatever reason, this works for some people. You know, that very painful spiciness or painful menthol feeling can can be a replacement. You can squeeze a stress ball or you can rip something, ripping paper. You can play the drums, beating the drums. You can sing or you can take a cold shower. All these things have been successful to some people. Number 12, you want to have a crisis plan. You want to have a crisis plan that, that involves other people. So when you are tempted to cut, tempted to self-injure, you want to have a plan of what to do. So you might have three people that you call when you have an urge to do it, and they will run to you and, and distract you and help you. Number 13, you want to Perhaps uh, do some addiction work. NSSI can become a sort of addiction, either a compulsive habit or a physiological dependence on the neurological reaction to the self-injury. And so 
sometimes when you use the addiction model of recovery, it can help. The 12 steps and the, well, not necessarily 12 steps, but a lot of the lingo and the mindset of someone going through recovery, you know, saying one day at a time, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say I'm never going to cut for the rest of my life, but I will say I'm not going to cut today. And you can go to support groups and you can work the steps and you can have the sort of mindset of addiction recovery, which can help. Number 14 is creativity, making art, writing a poem, writing a song. Oftentimes when people are using self-injury, it's because they have a very difficult time expressing themselves. And if they are able to express themselves through art and communicate to themselves and other people the way that they feel on the inside through some art form, maybe that will eliminate the need to do the self-injury. Number 15, this is very important, is to, to explore what the meaning of the self-injury is. What's the narrative of the situation? Why do you do this? And this can be very profound for some people. For some people, they might say, I self-injure because I, you know, when they look back on their self-injury, they say, I was self-injuring because I was trying to cope with my difficult childhood and I, I didn't want to lash out at other people, so I lashed out at myself. And it was a necessary phase of my life because it brought me to my wonderful therapist and now I no longer do it anymore and it's behind me. So I hope you understand what I mean by meaning is that it, it, it fits into the narrative of someone's life in a, shall we say, congruent way that it doesn't stick out as an asterisk to someone's life. It, it, it feels like a part of their of their development and their growth in a, in a meaningful way. And the last thing that I'll say is relapse prevention. Once someone has quit for a sustained amount of time, you want to have a relapse prevention plan. You want to have a prevention plan for shame. When you experience shame, what do you do with that? Because if you don't do something about your shame, it'll lead to more NSSI. And here's some things from Reddit that people have been writing. Clean of self-harm for a year. I've been fighting the thoughts, the dreams, and the damn awful panic attacks for a week. But today, I screwed all that up. I bought some razors, and the rest is self-explanatory. I am never going to be over this self-harm. Longest I've been clean is six years, but even then, I relapsed. End quote. So here we have someone writing on Reddit, how you can really hear the shame and the disappointment. Today I screwed it up. I have been clean from cutting for so long, and today I screwed it up. That, that shame and that self-punishment is so indicative of NSSI and leads to more NSSI. So when you relapse, which will happen, you want to avoid shaming yourself because that shame, some people will think, well, in order for me to stop doing this thing that I want to stop, I have to really beat myself up. And I'll admit that for some people that's true. But for the vast majority of people in my experience, when they engage in that self-punishment shaming, that actually leads to more use. Because say you relapse and you had a bad day and you're feeling pretty bad about yourself. And then you proceed to pile on with more negative self-talk. Well, now you got your self-esteem is even lower. 
And now you have an even greater reason to engage in NSSI. So it's very important not to shame the self. Here's another quote from Reddit. It's been four years since I've cut, but yesterday I just had the sudden urge to find any blade sharp enough to do the job. I don't know why. I thought that part of my life was over. I thought I was happy again. I was wrong. It felt so good that I don't want to stop again. So this is a very sad, sad passage here. This person is saying four years and they haven't cut, but then they suddenly had the urge to do it and they did it and it felt so good to them that they don't want to stop. It's important to know if you've never engaged in NSSI about what it feels like to be in in that person's shoes. Here's another person. I stopped cutting about five years ago, except for today. I have depression along with anxiety. My roommate sent me into an emotional breakdown. He told me that nobody liked me and nobody wants to be around me. So I went and did the only thing I know how to do right. You guys don't have to respond, but it just feels good to get it off of my chest. So this person's speaking to people on Reddit. And again, we have that element of interpersonal difficulties and rejection from other people and how that will lead to people engaging in in SSI. Okay, so what's the final word here? Let me summarize uh, my model. Again, number one, admit you have a problem. Number two, dedicate yourself to taking action. Number three, get therapy. Number four, self-awareness. Number five, physical warmth with other people. Number six, get support. Number seven, what I'm calling body work or relaxation, self-massage, this sort of thing. Number eight, remove temptations from your life. Number nine, distract yourself. Number 10, substitute the cutting or the self-injury with something else. Number 11, do something else like exercise, this sort of thing. 12, want to have a crisis plan for when you have an urge to do it. Number 13, you perhaps want to do some addiction work. Number 14, you want to use creativity to express yourself. Number 15, you want to find the meaning in your self-injury. And number 16, you want to have a relapse prevention plan. Okay, so the final word that I can say, again, if you've heard anything, please hear this. When people experience relationship trauma and difficulty, abuse and neglect as a child ongoing, one of the things that can happen, among many others, is someone developing a very self-punishing attitude toward the self. Because they've internalized the abuser, they've internalized that person that was treating them badly. That when they make a mistake as a teenager, and when they have a low self-esteem moment, there is a compulsion to harm the self. And there's also a tremendous amount of negative feelings that result. Because they were neglected, they weren't given enough love to help them uh, regulate their emotions. Because of this, their, their feelings are so intense and they're, they're, they're feeling so, so, so bad. That's, that's one thing. If you've never met someone that cut and you don't cut yourself, it's hard to imagine how much suffering these people go through. You know, if, if you're not one of those people and, you know, just think about your worst day and how, how horrible you felt, the, you know, the worst mood you've ever been in. Well, times that by 10, 20, 30. That's, how the, that's the way these people feel. They feel so bad. It's so debilitating. And they're so 
hurt and they're so angry and that's all that they can think about. And they will get desperate, these people. And through trial and error or through word of mouth, they'll figure out that cutting or other forms of self-injury will actually result in taking away those feelings. You know, when they burn their skin with a lighter, they find that, huh, for 10 minutes, I'm no longer ruminating on how horrible I am and how horrible my life is. And it's not like they like to burn themselves or like to cut themselves, but they, they resort to it because it provides them with a, with a relief from their tremendous, tremendous pain. Again, they're, not ne- they're, they're almost never doing it to get attention. They're almost always hiding it. And we as a society and we as clinicians can help these people by reducing stigma, by listening, by doing the things that I said to do, like taking a deep breath, slowing down, listen, approach them carefully, have compassion, don't, don't judge them, encourage them to get help, don't, don't, don't tell on them, don't spread the word unless they want you to. Take a long-term approach with them and be slow, be close, listen, don't push, don't control. We can, we can help them with that. And maybe not only will they stop injuring themselves, but more importantly, maybe they'll stop suffering so much. And there's research to tell us that there's hope for many people that are in this state, that with proper treatment, they can actually feel much better in one, two, three years later. So there's a lot of hope for people like that. All right. Well, if you have thoughts about it, let me know. And spread the word. Have other people become patrons. We currently have, according to when I'm recording this, 138 patrons, which is super freaking rad. Again, we're, we're looking for about 300. Um, that, that's sort of a, a magic number we're, we're shooting for. So looks like we're almost there, halfway there. All right, that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me out there. And please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really do. Music.